0: Okay, so what we're doing is we're going to kind of complete the the theme of what we dealt with in the Certainty Conference, and I'm giving it a title, The Nuts and Bolts of Dispensationalism. Uh, If you're interested in catching up, you weren't here, especially we had morning sessions. And the morning sessions, um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we covered all the reasons why we need to interpret the Bible properly, and we also talked about the history of others who have believed and taught this up until our time right now. And so today we're going to kind of walk through the details of what exactly are the seven classic dispensations in the Bible. Uh, What this is going to do for those of you that were a part of the conference, it will kind of tie a bow on everything that we've learned so far. And uh, if you weren't a part of it and you want to catch up, you can go to our website, fbclinked.org, and you can go to the Sunday Morning Messages And you can get audios for every session, morning session, evening session. They're all available there. Um, But today, we cut one song out of the service because we got a lot to cover. And I'm going to move fairly quickly, okay? So um, I don't want to talk super fast, but you're going to kind of have to listen fast. And, And I gave you today a very detailed set of notes so that if you're interested... You can take them home, you can reference the scriptures, you can look them up on your own, and and hopefully that will help you. So before we jump in, let's just take a second and pray, and then we'll hit the ground running. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for giving us not just your word, and certainly not just the Holy Spirit, the author and interpreter of it, but you have defined for us how to do that, and that system is clearly by rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I know that in this room there are just countless needs. Everybody that's here represents a different need or two uh, in their lives, and they have come here to hear from you. And so regardless of the subject in front of us, Lord, your Holy Spirit can do what only you can do, and that's my prayer, that you would speak to each and every heart, and each and every person would receive from you a word that would encourage them to know what you would have them to do with the next step of their lives. That's our desire always when we come together. We want to magnify you. So speak through your word, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this idea of dispensationalism, just in very quick review, is the system of properly interpreting or understanding the scriptures. And the only way to do that, as I prayed, comes out of 2 Timothy 2.15, and that is to rightly divide the word of truth. If you were with us last Sunday, we talked about this in some detail. If not, you can go back and listen to the message online from last Sunday. So I want to start off today by way of introduction and just make this uh, point and ask the question, why do we teach dispensations? I mean, why is it that we need to learn this situation? Why do we need to learn this system of Bible interpretation? Well, it's important to learn this system of Bible interpretation so that we don't add to, or take away from, or twist the understanding of the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 says that God is not the author of confusion. And so there's no reason to be confused when we look at the Scripture. God will give us a proper understanding Himself. And all through the Bible, you'll notice in your notes, there's just tons of Scripture references. They'll pop up on the screen, but we're not going to read them all. But all through the Bible, God gives us these admonitions. So in the Old Testament, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in the first couple of verses, you'll see that God says very clearly that we are not to add to the Scriptures. And we're not to take away from the scriptures either. Don't add to them. Don't diminish from them. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, the same thing. Don't add to the scriptures. If you do that, you'll be found a liar. We go into the New Testament, and at the very end of the entire revelation of God, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, again, it says, Be sure that you don't add to or take away from the scriptures, because if you do, there's the big or else and the big or else is all the plagues of this book will be added unto you. Nobody wants that, so you don't want to add to the Scriptures. You don't want to take away. In other words, we just take it as it's given and believe it as it's given to us. The Bible also warns us that we're not to rest the Scriptures or twist the Scriptures. And that's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16 where he refers to the writings of Paul as Scripture, and he says some people, and he categorizes them as unlearned and unstable. People who are unlearned, they're ignorant, they're they're unaware of truth, or they're unstable, they just don't have character and, and a foundation in their life, will tend to do this. They will rest, like the word wrestle. They will twist or contort the understanding of the Scriptures. And he says if you do that, they do it to their own destruction. And 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20 makes it very clear, as Peter tells us when we looked at it last week, that the the scriptures are given to us by inspiration of God and holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But we have to be careful that we don't privately interpret them. So that means that God has to be the one to interpret them. And again, we looked at that last time. And dispensationalism is the only hermeneutic the Greek word that is the cash equivalent of interpretation. Dispensationalism is the only dispensation is the only interpretation, excuse me, that is self-defined within the text of the Bible. It has to be that way. You have to expect that. because if God did not define for us how to interpret the scripture, then we have to define how to interpret the scripture. and as soon as we define, how to interpret the scripture? Well, by definition, that means that it's private. It's a private interpretation, and that is forbidden. That is not allowed. So, every other system of Bible interpretation that does not bring you back to proper divisions, rightly dividing, is a private interpretation. Because you can't find scriptural text that defines for you that that is the way to do that. Are we okay? Are we on the same page so far? It's a little technical, but we're going to jump in, okay? You ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, we're just getting started. Point number one in your notes, the biblical structure of a dispensation. The biblical structure of a dispensation. So we will define, once again for you, what a dispensation is. Now, the word dispensation is also translated in your Bible as stewardship, and we'll see that in just a moment. But a dispensation literally um, would be a period of time where God dispenses truth concerning eternal life through a certain method. And in this case, it would always be in accordance with the word of God. And so God is dispensing his truth to humanity throughout the course of human history, right? So for the last 6,000 years of human history, um, God will have different divisions of time where he reacts and interacts with man a little bit differently. And that's what we're going to see. That is the core understanding of what dispensationalism is all about. And what we're going to see, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 16, are four characteristics of a dispensation. And in Luke's gospel, what you have in chapter number 16 is the first mention of the word that is also translated dispensation, but here it's translated stewardship And so we're going to look at the first four verses. Let me read them for you. Luke 16. This is Jesus. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed." i 'm resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses, and the story goes on about the details of this steward and the plans that he made to try and figure out what to do based on the fact that he blew it and he lost his stewardship that 's a great Bible study, and we 're not going to enter- take on that Bible study today, but in those first four verses, all you need to know is God gives us the four characteristics of any of every dispensation, and the first one is Every dispensation has a leading steward. Every dispensation has a leading steward or character or focus. The person who has been given this responsibility. So in the first part of Luke 16, 1, there is a certain rich man, which represents God, who had a steward. That's the guy who's managing his kingdom, his affairs. Uh, Number two, every steward has a responsibility. So his responsibility is to care for the business of the rich man, of the owner, Luke 16, 1 and 2, he calls him into account. You call somebody into account because they have been given a responsibility and you want to check up and see whether or not they have carried out that responsibility faithfully or not because, as every parent knows, with responsibility comes accountability. And we need to remember that as well in our life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, in every dispensation... In every dispensation, there's a failure to fulfill that responsibility. That's bad news. (laughs) But if you study the scriptures, you find, as we will see shortly, that every single one has blown it. It says that he was accused of wasting his master's goods. He was given a responsibility, and he didn't do a good job. He wasted his master's goods. So the fourth characteristic is that in every dispensation, God comes down in judgment and takes away the stewardship. And that's what we see in verses 3 and 4, that he says, What shall I do? My Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. And in verse 4, I'm resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, okay, so there has to be a judgment. There has to be a righteous result of the fact that the steward blew it. That's what it is. That's how it works. That's it. That's the system God sets up. And so with that system, by understanding God's system of divisions and getting them in the right place, by understanding that a dispensation is a stewardship, by understanding God's definition of a stewardship and how they're going to run the course of history, all we're going to do now for the next two hours, no, not kidding, just kidding, is a very fast running history of every bit of it. If you take the time this year while you are reading through the Bible systematically and just look for these keys, you look for the fact that there is a leading steward, that he's given a responsibility, that that steward ultimately fails and there's ultimate judgment and removal of the responsibility in the stewardship, what you will find is throughout the course of time, we're not dealing with eternity past and we're not dealing with eternity future, but all of the time of man on earth, There's seven. Go figure. There's always seven, right? Everything breaks down into sevens or threes. I mean, there's just some numbers that keep popping up in the Bible, and seven's one of them. There happen to be, and this is the second point in your notes, seven classic dispensations of human history. Now, if you're a studious type and You like to buy books from Christian bookstores on theology and read and study. You very likely can come across other people's systems where they break it into eight or nine or maybe more or maybe less. I don't really know. And everybody does it a little different. But without question, the most widely accepted understanding of how the divisions fall out is this system right here. And so this is what we teach. We cannot possibly, this is good news for you because you'll be able to eat lunch on time. We cannot possibly spend a ton of time on each of these. Let me just give you this, because we're going to kind of, you look at your notes and it's all filled out and there's tons of verses and it follows the system and it all lays out, okay? But at the end, if you'll hang with me, okay, at the end, there, the third point for study today, when we get to that, there's actually some practical applications. There's actually some things that I think will really help you in your life. Like I said, if you're a student of the Bible, going through these details will help you. You can take them home. You can make an outline in your Bible. You can make the marks and the margins near these places in the scripture. I encourage you to do that if you're going to be a good student. But at the end, there's actually some reasons why, and we're going to see that when we get to the third point. So hang with me, and we're going to start with the very first dispensation. We're going to go chronologically, of course, uh, letter A, the dispensation of innocence. The dispensation of innocence Okay, and this is also referred to as the Edenic, Edenic, of course, like the Garden of Eden. Okay, the duration of this time period would be Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God creates man, he puts him in the Garden of Eden, and we only see that in this particular dispensation in the first three chapters. The leading steward, without question, is Adam. God formed man, it says in Genesis 2, right? He placed him in a garden eastward in Eden, and so without, I mean, of course it's Adam. I mean, who else is he picking? I mean, that's all he's got. Okay, so Adam is the guy, and he's given a responsibility, and the responsibility that he's given is to dress and keep the garden. So he was to work, no question about it, and he was given one prohibition, and that is don't eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So keep Keep track of the whole garden, and that one tree, leave it alone. Don't eat from that tree. So that was his responsibility. And you know the story. He then fails. Adam, under the leadership of his wife, gave in and said okay, and they ate the fruit of that tree that they were not supposed to eat, and they failed. They blew it. They broke the rules. They wasted the the stewardship. They messed up. And so as a result, there's a judgment. There's a judgment that comes down near the end of Genesis chapter three, and you finish this story in Genesis three, where God comes back and He says, "You know, where are you? He's hiding. Why'd you hide? Him? well, because I was naked and ashamed. Well, how did you know you were naked and ashamed? Did you eat of the tree? And and all the way goes all the way down, and He says, "Well, it's not my fault. The woman that you gave me—I mean, she did it. And actually, the serpent fooled her. And then He, and so God ends up systematically passing judgment on the man and the woman and the serpent as a result of those things, right?" And, and at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are expelled from the, from the garden. They're, they're kicked out. And then there's a cherub who blocks the way so that they can't make it back in, so that they can't go back. Now that they're sinful, now that they have a sin nature, now that they've lost the glory of God, they can't go back and eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. This is a dispensation of innocence. Innocence. This is a time that is characterized. This is the time before sin. Until they sinned, this is that time frame that they, man would have lived. There's no need for salvation. There's no salvation because they weren't sinners. Okay? And so once they sin, then we're going to roll into the next dispensation. But the point is, is that at this point, they're just innocent. They're like those beautiful little babies when we have children and we all rejoice and we love the little babies when they're born and it's a wonderful thing and we wonder, you know, what happens to a baby when they die? Are they saved? Do they go to heaven? Well, of course they go to heaven, but it's not because they're saved. It's because they're innocent. And there comes a time in a person's life and it's different for everybody exactly when that is. We commonly refer to that as the age of accountability. When a child grows to the point and they begin to understand the difference between good and evil. And because they have a sin nature, they choose evil 100% of the time. And without question, all of us are guilty, and we all therefore need salvation. But at this point, there is a point when little babies, and they're just, they're cute. They're innocent. That's the dispensation of innocence. By the time they get to y'all's age, you've already proven that you're sinners. We're all sin, right? I mean, we're we're all in this thing together. Okay, then we move on to the next one, letter B, the dispensation of conscience. The dispensation of conscience. We call this the Adamic dispensation. A lot of times they're also named after the chief steward, again, Adam and his sons. The duration goes Genesis 4, 5, 6, and 7. Not that much. But as you read the narrative, you see that there's some things going on. Adam and his sons, his lineage, um, they are the chief stewards. Uh, the responsibility is to carry out what God always told them to carry out, even from Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. So that's their responsibility. Yes, they've fallen, but still they are to multiply and replenish the earth. So when you get into that, you find, for example, in Genesis chapter 5, and the entire chapter really, is it's the book of the generations of Adam. And it talks about how many years he lived, and he begat sons and daughters, and then he died. And then that son, how many years they lived and begat sons and daughters, and they died. And, and so what they're doing is, is they are fulfilling their responsibility. And, and they started off pretty good fulfilling their responsibility. In fact, they remember the prophecy, the first prophecy that was given in Genesis 3.15, which, which dealt with the promise of the coming of the Messiah. It would be the seed of the woman that would bruise the head right of the seed of the serpent and that ultimately that would become the Messiah, but, you know, I'm sure that that was a little unclear to them. They just knew that there was a coming seed that was going to save the day, but yet still, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't really fulfill this, although they started off well. Genesis 6-1 shows off that they did. They began to multiply on the face of the earth, so they started off okay. But in this time, what's going on? Well, man is now a sinner, There's no scripture given to him. I mean, how is he supposed to know exactly what he's to do before the Lord? Well, he has a conscience. And your conscience, friends, is the thing that sets you apart from the animal kingdom. I mean, we all love our little doggies and kitties and all that stuff. And we want to know that they're going to be in heaven with us, you know, when they go. And, you know, I don't want to burst your bubble or nothing. But they're not. They're not. Don't let me finish my sentence, please. They're not humans. They can't respond to a creator like we respond to a creator. They don't have a conscience. You might think they do, but really all they care about is, are you going to feed them? That's all they care about. We superimpose our emotions and personalities on these poor creatures, and they're just like, I know if I do this, I'll get food. That's all they care about. All right, I just, just, I just put off about half of you. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's get back to the Bible. This free, This freelancing ain't working for me, so... We'll go back to see what happens. They had a conscience. Genesis chapter 4 makes that clear. In verses 3, 4, and 5, Cain and Abel. What did they do? How do we know what they knew to do? Well, they had a conscience to tell them what to do. They bring offerings before the Lord. Why? Because they know they're sinners, and they have to offer something of peace to the Lord. right? Abel's offering was, was the flock. Animals had to be killed And and that was acceptable to the Lord because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. But Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. And that was not acceptable to the Lord because the Lord knows that you can't get blood from a turnip. And so it's the time of conscience, and that's how they responded. And so they ended up failing in their responsibility. Why? Because ultimately the seed of man that was supposed to multiply and fill the earth is corrupted. In Genesis chapter 2... 3, 4, and 5, or, yeah, Genesis chapter 6, excuse me, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, you have these sons of God, take my word for it, Bible is clearly in in defining this, in the Old Testament, these sons of God in Genesis 6 are not just godly people, these are angelic beings from the heavenlies that come down to earth and marry daughters of men. So you have angels that are males, that come down and take wives of human women. They corrupt the seed. Their offspring is this freak, giant offspring. There's always a freak offspring when these species that don't belong together get together. And it corrupts the seed. That's Satan's plan to ultimately destroy the opportunity for the Messiah, the the seed of the woman, to bruise the head of the serpent. And so with that, they blew it when they allowed that to happen, they failed in their mission. And so there's a judgment. And the judgment ultimately comes where God destroys the earth with a flood. And so in Genesis 6, we see that it repented God that he made man and he said, I'm wiping them out. I'm wiping them out. So then in Genesis 7, you have the flood of the rains that come and it rains continually for 150 days and all the land is filled and And everybody is killed. Everybody's dead except Noah and his family because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, of course, the animals they brought with them. And uh, so Noah and his family make it, which is a very clear and easy transition into the next dispensation, which will be named after Noah, the Noahic dispensation or the dispensation of human government, because something new is introduced in the time of Noah that was never introduced prior to the time of Noah, and that's human government. We'll see that in a second. We crank through the first few dispensations in just very few chapters in the Bible. Now it's Genesis chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, and the stewards, without question, are Noah and his sons. And so in Genesis 9, in verse number 1, it says that God blessed Noah and... His sons. So they are the ones that are called out. They are given the exact same responsibility all the way back from Adam in Genesis 9-1 to be fruitful, to, be multiply, to multiply, and to replenish the earth, right? And this time, there's something added. It, God knows, obviously, that, that man is just, you know, the thoughts of his heart are wicked and evil continually. So he wipes them all out, and he starts over. And he starts over, and he's like, okay, now I'm going to let you govern yourself. So you go down in Genesis chapter 9 Verses 5 and 6, and it said, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So now man is going to govern man in the things that man does. We have human government for the first time. Man is now given the authority to serve as a governor over his brother. Remember back when Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Remember that excuse? Well, now he's saying, well, now you are. Now you've got to look over at one another, right? And so they are to be fruitful, they are to multiply, and they are to literally repopulate, replenish, and fill the earth everywhere. Now, there's eight, there's eight human beings at this point, and they've got to repopulate the whole earth. And so the failure then is the refusal to scatter all over the whole earth, and that's what we see in Genesis chapter 11. You know the story of Genesis 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And frequently we want to emphasize the fact that they built this tower to reach unto heaven, and God comes down and he destroys it because as though they were going to reach unto heaven. You know, the Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven. I mean, it was kind of like that, and God doesn't like Led Zeppelin, so he's going to destroy it. (laughs) And so, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so... (laughs) But there's really more going on than just the fact that they're, I mean, they're not really building a, I mean, they're not really going to make it to heaven. How foolish would that be? So, you know, whether they're building a radio tower, I mean, what are they doing? You can, you know, seriously, what was that tower all about? And we're never going to get done with this. But, I mean, think to yourselves, seriously, think to yourselves some of the pyramid-type structures in the world. Think to yourselves some of the ancient Indian ruins, the Mayans and the Aztecs, and they have their temples um, whereas it was a place and a point of worship. It's, it's more along those lines, if you want to kind of get an idea of what they're really talking about, uh, all Led Zeppelin aside. And, uh, but what they really did was, if you look in Genesis 11 and verse number 4, it says, let's build a tower. And he says, let's build a tower. It says, lest we be scattered. We, we're all, they're all of one voice of one tongue they they were all together and unified and they're like we're all hanging together we're not we're not spreading out and God's God's responsibility that he gave them was spread out and they wouldn't do it so the judgment comes and God scatters them because they wouldn't scatter on their own he confounds their language they can't even talk to each other anymore which makes missionary work really hard now but he scatters them all over the world and that's Because that's what he wanted him to do all along. So once again, we have the pattern, the steward, the responsibility, the failure, and the judgment. And as you're reading the Bible, hopefully you begin to see, oh, hey, this this actually kind of makes sense. Yes, it actually makes sense. The fourth dispensation, the dispensation of promise, the Abrahamic dispensation. So now we're going to grab a bigger chunk of Scripture. We're going to go from Genesis chapter 12. Roughly to Genesis or Exodus, excuse me, chapter 19. And uh, so that's the part of the scripture that you're looking at. The chief steward, Abraham, and then ultimately his lineage, of course, as it continues on. Abraham doesn't live the entire time. But it starts in Genesis chapter 12, right after this judgment of Babel. And God said unto Abram, Get thee out of the land, go to a new place, a place that I'm going to show you. You don't know where it is yet, but just start moving. I'll tell you when you get there. So Abram is the steward. The responsibility is to inhabit the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is the ultimate place God wants his people to dwell. And so he says, I'm going to take you unto a land. And then later on in Genesis 12 and verse number 7, he says, the land where the Canaanites are. And he says, that's the place. Stop there. That's the, this land is the land that I've given unto you and unto your seed. And while God did that, he gave Abram some unconditional promises for fulfilling his plan. For the first time in Scripture, we see you know, that I'll bless you, and I'll bless those that bless you, and curse those that curse you, and, and thy seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He doesn't say that he'll do that if... Abraham cooperates. He just said he'll do it. God's just going to do it. There is this undercurrent of theme that ultimately God wants his people everywhere on the planet. That is the undercurrent throughout. But what you see is, is that he gives some unconditional promises. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. But in the course of time, Abraham is a sinner just like all the rest of us. He takes his eyes off the promises and begins to look at his immediate circumstances. And he didn't just stay in Canaan. He went his own way, and that's the failure. He forsook the land of Canaan, and he goes down to Egypt. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 10, we find out that there's a famine in the land, and that's never easy. And Abram's sitting there thinking, well, I'm in the place God said, but there's nothing to eat, so we got to do something. And so he takes off. You'll notice if you study Genesis 12 that God never told Abram. Go to Egypt. He never told him that. He just went on his own. And then that's the story that many of you are familiar with. So he goes down to Egypt. He's nervous. You know, Sarah, his wife, is a little haughty. I mean, she's something, you know. And he's worried. He's like, man, the men are going to take her and they're going to kill me to get you. And, you know, he's a little cowardly and he's like, okay, so let's make a deal. What do you say? And how they, you know, how she went with this, I'll never know. But, you know, praise the Lord for Sarah because she had more faith than he did. And he's like, let's just say you're my sister. So that way, if the men take you, you know, uh, I'll still live. And she's like, okay, you know. And so they take her. You know the story, right? And Pharaoh, and then ultimately God intervenes because Abram's too stupid. And God intervenes. Listen, you ought to have sense of humor when you read the Bible. you got to get this. So God intervenes. This is the Bartel version narrative. Okay, so... He's like, hey, Pharaoh, stop it. That's, that's this dude's wife, and if you, you, know, you mess with her, I'm going to kill you. And Pharaoh goes back and tells it. You know the story, right? Tells Abram, what, what are you doing? Dude, you lied. You said, he, you said it was your sister. And he's like, well, she's kind of my sister too, which is weird because he's not from West Virginia. But um, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. I know. I will tender my resignation. Sorry, I'm sorry. That's a majority vote. Absolutely. I don't. This has been a rough week for me, y'all. Okay, this is how it's coming out. Ready? So, God never told him to go. Let me let's, let's let's rope her back in. God never told anybody to go to Egypt. I know there is the exception of Joseph and Mary with Jesus. Generally speaking, Egypt is not a place for God's children. Why? Egypt represents the world. You know what, Christian? Egypt is not a place for you. I'm not talking about the country in North Africa. I'm talking about this world system is not a place for you to be hanging around. That's not where, that's not where you belong. Um, but nevertheless, God protects them. Why? Because his promises were unconditional. That's why. But there is judgment. And the judgment is that Israel becomes slaves in Egypt. And so God says he's going to do that in Genesis 15, 13. He says, you will be, because you did this, you'll be a stranger, and you will serve this foreign power. Right, And then ultimately, you get to the book of Exodus as it kicks off in chapter 1, and that's what happens. Israel, they are slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Now listen, understand, so there, you, we can get practical applications all along the way. There's always consequences for sin. God's going to come in and save the day, but there are always consequences for sin, right? And God can use them even in the midst of your failure. God can twist them back around and use them to work together for good, praise the Lord. But that doesn't mean that that was ever the plan. That doesn't mean that that's what he intended, right? Okay, the next dispensation is the dispensation of the law, because now we're in the time of Moses, so we call it the Mosaic dispensation as well. The dispensation of the law. So, this is Exodus chapter 20, which is the giving of the law at Sinai, up until Matthew 26, just before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this is virtually the entirety of your Old Testament. The the vast majority of your Old Testament is a system of law, and you're familiar with that if you spend any time at all in the Bible. So, the chief steward is Moses, but really it rolls over into the entire nation of Israel. Yes, it's Moses at the beginning, but ultimately it is the entire nation of Israel that becomes the chief steward in administering God's law. And so you have the reference in Exodus chapter 3, starting off the first 10 verses, and what you have there is God calling Moses, that burning bush experience. And he says, hey, I want you to go, and I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, you know, set my people free, and we're going to leave, and we're leaving Egypt, and we're heading back home. And the whole story, of the plagues, and ultimately the wilderness and the whole deal. But that's, that's kind of where it starts. God calls out a new steward. I'm trying to lay out for you the structure of the dispensations and how you find them. Okay, The responsibility is to provide the nation of Israel with a detailed, moral, civil, and governmental code. That's what he's doing. Through the law given on Sinai. It is a detailed description of what God expects morally, civilly, and governmentally. And you see that in Exodus chapter 19 where that's where it all begins. Moses is up on Sinai. God is getting ready. And it continues through the rest of the book of Exodus, all the details of the law. It starts with the the big ten commandments, the moral law. And then rolls into all the ceremonial laws and the priesthood and all of the different things that Israel is to keep. Those things which we no longer have to keep, thank the Lord. But that is the responsibility. This is the code. This is what you administer. This is what you will manage. This is what you will obey. This is what I will judge. Of course it ends in failure. Who could possibly keep the law? And they reject the law. And in Exodus 32, Moses isn't even done, and they're already down at the base of the mountain, Aaron and the rest of the people of Israel, and they're throwing their earrings in the pot and making a golden calf to worship. And Moses comes back, and then ultimately throughout the rest of the Old Testament, what do you have? You have one failure after another as they're rejecting God's plan as administered through the priests, the kings, and the prophets. That's most of your Old Testament. So for example, you go into the book of Judges and you have the failure of Israel under the leadership of the priests and the judges. And the book of Kings and Chronicles, for example, come in, well, First and Second Samuel into that as well, and it it shows Israel's failure under a system of kings. And then you come into the books of prophecy and all the major prophets and all the minor prophets. And what do you have? They're, they're preaching and proclaiming God's righteousness and... What the people ought to do, and what do the people do? Well, the opposite. And so, ultimately, there's the failure of Israel under the prophets. So, since the steward blew the responsibility, then it's a failure, it's judgment. That's all that remains is judgment. So, what's the judgment? Well, God takes the nation of Israel and sends them into captivity. And so, Babylon comes in, and they take them captive, and they all go away into captivity for... 70-odd years, and yes, of course, eventually they return from captivity, but even after they return from captivity with Nehemiah and Ezra, and they work their way into rebuilding the temple and the final prophets leading up to Malachi, Israel never really regains their prominence, do they? Israel never really gets back on top like they're supposed to. Israel never really goes back to their command given in Deuteronomy that they were to be the head of all the nations, ruling from Canaan. They never really got there. And so they're just kind of limping along. And in the meantime, you have like a 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew And during that time, that's when Israel dreamed up a bunch of rules on their own. That's where we see the development of Pharisees. That's where we see the the development and the setting in place of Sadducees. That's where we see all of these things that were in place when Jesus shows up. It has nothing to do with even the Old Testament law. They kind of made that up on their own while they were so distant from the Lord, they weren't behaving like they were supposed to behave. And so even when Jesus shows up on his earthly ministry... It is still completing the time of Moses. The law, the Bible says in Galatians 4 that Jesus was born in an appropriate time. He was made under the law in the fullness of time. He was made under the law. So the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is still the completion of this mosaic dispensation. Which leads us to the dispensation of grace. Letter F, your sixth dispensation. The dispensation of of grace, Or the Christian dispensation. This is the time in which we live. So we would start that in Matthew 27, roughly. Of course, you have four gospel accounts. You have to find the right chapter in each one. But basically from the time of the crucifixion, right? The death, burial, and resurrection. Next week is what? Easter. Right, so we celebrate the institution of the dispensation of grace. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the culmination of all the things they blew in the Old Testament and offering to all of us the free gift of eternal life. And that's where we're living here. This is the dispensation of grace. It's the most amazing time. And so we have the crucifixion up until Revelation 3, the end of which is the rapture of the church. So the chief steward, if you wanted to pick one individual to kick it off, it would be the Apostle Paul. It would be the Apostle Paul, but ultimately it is his spiritual descendants, which would be the church. We lost some lights, didn't we? Is that the idea? Did we lose some lights? Did, did you all notice it got darker in here? Or is that just me? Was it the Led Zeppelin thing or the West Virginia thing? I'll just, okay, let me, just, let me just hurry before the rest of them go. All right. So Paul and his descendants, the church. So for example, Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. He says, hey, you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given unto me, to you word, right? To fulfill the word of God. And so there's this dispensation of the grace of God. Paul says it was given unto me. Well, it was given unto me for you. In a sense, it's given unto all of us. But he gets the ball rolling with Paul. In Colossians chapter 1 and verses 24 through 27, he refers to it a little different way. He calls it the dispensation of God. But again, he says, it is given to me to give unto you, right? So Paul is the guy who writes 13 books in the New Testament that are written to the churches or to individual Christians. Paul is the guy who lays the foundation for all that we need to understand about doctrine in the church age, he is the chief steward. But in Ephesians 2 and verse number 20, it's very clear that we're all in this together because we're all a part of the building that is the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? So there's a responsibility given, and the responsibility of a, of a steward is to be a steward, to steward something, to manage something. And there's a couple of main things. We are to be stewards of the mysteries of God in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, we are to be faithfully stewarding and caring for the truth of God's word. Amen. And we are also, also supposed to be stewards of the gospel. And that's 1 Corinthians 9, 17, where he said Paul says, hey, there is something called a dispensation of the gospel that is committed unto me. Remember the root of the word dispensation, to dispense. to to give out, to distribute. So there is a dispensing of the gospel. God has given to me the responsibility to dispense the gospel to the othermost parts of the earth. We call that the Great Commission. That is our job, church. This is the responsibility given by the rich man, God Almighty, to us, the stewards of the church age, to take his word, to understand it rightly, that's what we're doing today, and to then give it out to the world so that they can be saved. It is missions. It is worldwide evangelization. It is making disciples of all nations. That's what we're supposed to do. Why do we talk about that so much? Well, it's only the job God gave us. That's why. I mean, why do you go to church? I mean, that's why we're here. Well, you know, uh, if you've been feeling good, well, I don't know how, but if you have, uh, you know, we're going to blow this one too. This one ends in failure. It is prophesied. It's going to be a failure. That doesn't mean quit trying. You can be an overcomer, but as a whole, the church also fails. And the failure is we go into apostasy. Apostasy is just falling away from a previous standing position. We were standing with the Lord, we fall away from the Lord, and it is called apostasy. We no longer, as a church, hold fast onto sound doctrine, and therefore we don't fulfill the great commission in the church age. First Timothy chapter four, and verse number one talks about the church not giving heed to sound doctrine, but rather giving way to something called seducing spirits. First Timothy six, at the end of that book. It talks about, hey, you you really need to watch out, because there's these things called oppositions of science, falsely so-called. They're going to come to test you and to try you and to see if you're going to cave, especially applicable to you who are still in school, because the school and the educational system today of this world is going to try and use things that they will call science to strip you of your understanding of what God said in his word. And God's word can stand in the face of any science or anything or any philosophy, of course. But these are challenges that are going to come in, and by the end of the church age, the church body as a whole is going to give so much room to you know, this self-man-made wisdom system of education. I mean, we talk about the gods of this age being sex and money, and in a, in, a, in a lot of ways that's true. But one of the gods of this age is also education, because man thinks he's smarter than God. And then they become critical of God and critical of God's word like you're smart enough to do that. You've got to watch out for that stuff. Not holding fast to sound doctrine and therefore not fulfilling the Great Commission. So if you go to the end of Revelation chapter number 3 and there's, you know, Revelation 2 and 3 has seven churches. And they represent the church ages, I mean the age of, of the church from, from the time of the resurrection until the rapture. And, and they're broken up into seven and the last one is Laodicea. And a lot of you know this, and maybe some of you don't, but Laodicea is the church, the seventh of the seven. And, and, and the characteristics given to Laodicea, there's nothing but rebuke. Everything is bad. There's nothing good said about it. Oh, they say good things about themselves. They say, oh, we're rich. We're increased with goods. We have need of nothing. Which sadly would include not even God, right? This is the church saying this now. And God says, you don't even know. That you're poor, you're miserable, you're wretched, you're blind, and you're naked. Now, those are all spiritual analogies. Physically speaking, we are rich and increased with goods, especially in the Western civilization. But man, spiritually speaking, so many people that are wealthy physically are so poor spiritually. Why? Because the church near the end in Laodicea fails. The church fails. You don't have to fail, individual Christian. You can stand. We don't have to fail, local church. We can stand. But as a whole of Christianity, it's going down the tubes. So there's going to be a judgment. And you might not have ever thought about it this way, but the judgment on the church, it's the rapture of the church. You think, wow, that's that glorious day. That's that blessed day, right? Well, remember that with the rapture of the church comes that, eh, you know, nervous day called the judgment seat of Christ. Of course, none of you here would have ever done this, but let me give you a hypothetical situation. Have you ever seen somebody in Walmart? Now, this is just going to set it all up, because once you say Walmart, you know, what don't you see in Walmart? So, Say there's a little kid, and he's just acting up. I mean, he's throwing a tantrum, and he wants junk, and he's screaming at his mother, and he won't. I mean, I mean he's, just, he's just crazy. He's just a little kid, you know, and, and you're like, you know, I wouldn't slap your kid unless you gave me permission, you know, but I'm not doing it, and, but somebody ought to, and, you know, so I'm going to get in trouble, man. This is just not going to be a good day for me. Okay, so the parent, what the parent finally does if they're doing their job at some point, in some way, in their own way, They're basically going to snatch that kid up and, you know, set him in the little seat or whatever and just be like, knock it off. You need to time out. Something like that. Okay, you you with me? I'm sure none of us would ever do that. Our kids are awesome. Well, use that visual. God sees the church just throwing a tantrum. Selfish, just wanting more stuff because we're rich and increased with goods but never satisfied. And he's like, let me snatch you out of there, man. You're just getting on my nerves. So, you know, the rapture, you know, I, y'all looking forward to that glorious day. I mean, you ought to just make sure that when that day comes that you yourself are fairly well-aligned out <laughs> or it's going to be a tough day because ultimately, as a, as a whole, that day is a day of judgment. And that's 2 Corinthians 5. It's the judgment seat of Christ. Every man gives account for his life and his service to God, post-salvation, how you lived your life. That's the rapture of the church. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1, the apostle John, as a represent, representative of the entire church body, is snatched up and caught up into the third heaven. And so, that's a picture of the rapture. Now, I put an asterisk there for the tribulation because the tribulation some might say, is its own dispensation. I don't consider it its own dispensation. If you study the details of this very short time period, typically assigned seven years, from the rapture of the church until the literal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a time of tribulation on this earth, half of which, 42 months' worth, is called the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. All the plagues and all the things you read in the book of Revelation are poured out. What's really going on in the tribulation is the final chapter of what was yet uncompleted of the Mosaic dispensation. So you can look at it this way. The Mosaic dispensation goes all the way from Exodus 20 all the way until the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, but yet there is this roughly 2,000-year parentheses in time Where God calls, you know, he had a 70-year timeout for Israel, but then he goes ahead and gives them like a 2,000-year timeout. And that's the church age. And so really the tribulation is nothing more than the capstone and the completion of the Mosaic dispensation. I'm not trying to manipulate that to keep seven. The characteristics are exactly the same as the law, except now it is after Jesus Christ has already been on the planet and the church has been raptured out. And what's going to happen in the tribulation that will not happen in the church age is the Great Commission will be fulfilled by 144,000 Jewish evangelists that you can read about in Revelation chapter 7. Let's look at the last dispensation. It is the dispensation of the kingdom, letter G, also called the millennial dispensation. Literally, the millennium is the 1,000-year kingdom of heaven together with the kingdom of God on planet earth. You will find it in Revelation chapter 20. It's only one chapter, but it refers to a thousand years. The chief steward is not the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never fail. The chief steward is not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in glorified, sinless bodies in the governmental kingdom of our Lord and Savior. The chief steward in the time of the kingdom and the millennium are the Gentile nations. They are the nations of this world that pass from the tribulation into the millennium. That's Revelation chapter 20 and verse number four. There will be real human beings, not glorified human beings, that make it through the tribulation. And they enter into this new kingdom now that Christ returns and he sets up his throne and Man, you know, glorified little Christ's are flying around. That's us, and you know, governors and mayors or whatever we're doing. And these guys are just—I mean, like, our new building—it'll still be here. I mean, it, I mean, this—it'll everything's the same. The tree in your backyard will probably still be there. I mean, there'll be regular people. Well, they are the chief stewards, and the responsibility that they're given is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ on His throne in Jerusalem. They are to keep the feasts. They are to do a whole bunch of stuff. And if you want to know more about what the millennium is all about, about a year or so ago I did a series on it, but um, you can just read, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It is the constitution of the kingdom. You can read nine chapters at the end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48. And it will give you all of the function of what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. And all the details of the things that these nations are supposed to do in response to a glorified Lord Jesus and his glorified church in full visibility. Everywhere on the planet reminding them all the time of what they're supposed to do. Sounds pretty easy. (laughs) There's no need for faith At this time, everything is sight. In the Bible, faith is the opposite of sight. Why do you need faith if everything is fully visible for you? And so it's all completely and fully spelled out. And yet, (laughs) they will fail. Because in Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8, what we find is the rebellion of these nations against the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the thousand years, Satan, who has been bound for that time, is now loosed for a short time. And there will be countless people that will follow Satan in the rebellion after a thousand years of peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Can you imagine the wickedness of the heart of man that says, I've just been waiting for my chance to stick it to you, Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. Gog and Magog falls in at this time. And so the judgment is the great white throne. He comes down, sets up this great white throne and judges the earth, the heavens, the dead and that's the remainder of Revelation chapter 20. This is the ultimate judgment and after which man is completely and entirely without excuse. Just to finish up your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22 goes into eternity future and so that's outside the realm of time. Now, There is the quick flyby of the system of interpretation laying out for you the right divisions of your entire Bible. Let's give it up for Jeff. Come on. Let's give it up. Come on. All right. I know the West Virginia guys didn't do that. They didn't clap. I'm really sorry about that. That's just what came to my mind because I heard somebody from Ohio say it. I'm not from here. All right. Okay, so number three, point three. The wisdom of the dispensational system. There has to be a reason why we're doing all this. Why would God not just say, look, you know, y'all are like sheep, and sheep are kind of dumb, so let's just make it simple, and we'll just throw out one system. It'll be the perfect system, winner take all, loser loses all, whatever. I mean, let's just, why not one system? If you've ever studied this, you naturally have the thought in your mind, you know, why did he do it this way? Wouldn't it have been easier to do it a different way? Well, I mean, okay, uh, let's talk about that for just a second. I have in your notes, throughout human history, when time is done, and all the dispensations have run their course, check out what happens. God will have done everything possible to offer eternal life to mankind. And maybe more helpful than anything else for you in your processing of this information. Here's the conclusion of it all. At the end of all of these... Different ways of offering God's grace to you. Mankind always fails. And God will have successfully covered every conceivable scenario that man uses as an excuse for not being given a fair chance to succeed. You hear what I'm saying? You know how we are. Somebody says, well, hey, I gave you this. You immediately, like I do, you immediately think, hey, that's not fair because I didn't have this opportunity. Well, at the end of seven dispensations of human history, every excuse is covered and every mouth will be shut. And that's the point. Notice, what do we say? Well, that's not his fault. Man's just a product of his environment. Well, Adam in the Garden of Eden before sin had the perfect environment, and he still failed. Well, you just say, look, that's not the way I like to live. Here's how I like to live. Let your conscience be your guide. Oh, okay. Well, there was an entire dispensation of time that proved that when the conscience was your guide, you failed. You failed. Uh, You might say, well, look, I'm tired of people telling me what to do. I just want to rule myself. Oh, okay, well, he gave you an entire dispensation where you got to rule yourself, the Noahic dispensation, and you blew it. Well, you say, well, you know, it is kind of hard to get going. I mean, if somebody would just give me a leg up in life, then I would do just fine. Oh, really? Well, how about God gave you absolute, unconditional promises? Think that's enough of a leg up to get started? Blew it. Failed. Well, you know what? Sometimes, I mean, how do I really know exactly what you want me to do? Can't you give me just a detailed list of what I'm supposed to do so I know exactly what you want? Oh, yeah, how about the law? Very detailed list. Blew it. Failed. Sinful. Well, I just got to tell you, this is just entirely too complicated. (laughs) How about a free gift? How about I do it all? How about you do nada? <laughs> How about you just say, thank you, sir. How about you just try that? That's our day, y'all. This is now. It's, it's never, ever been or going to be easier. And man still rejects it? And, and God's people who have received eternal life continue to reject walking with him? Failure. Sinfulness. Well, it's just, you know, hard to conceive. It's not, the, the conceptual thing is kind of hard. It's just not, it's not clear enough. The kingdom on full display, crystal, literally crystal clear. And yet there's still rebellion. Yet there's still failure. Yet man still blows it. The dispensation of the kingdom. It's hard to imagine that after complete and full revelation that happens. So I put this in your notes. This, what is this, why is this God's system? Well, because this shows that man is broken, the flesh is wicked, and that we need salvation. Amen? Amen. Man is broken, the flesh is wicked, and we need to be saved. You know what else it shows you? How good God is, how much he loves you, and how he's always given you a chance. He's always given you a chance, and we need to be thankful for that. So, in each dispensation, how is man supposed to respond? Is there a common thread? Because what we see is the rules kind of change a little bit, right? And I would say yes. Man, in every case, has to have faith in whatever God said to him. Now, what God said in each case is a little different maybe, or added to, or a little changed from the way it was said before. But if you want a common denominator of all of time, the common denominator is... Just believe and do whatever it is God said to you. So the skeptic of the dispensational system pops up. And they say, well, what you're promoting, Jeff, is a system that has more than one gospel. And the Bible is very clear you can't have more than one gospel. Is there more than one way for man to be saved? Well, that's a very good question if you were thinking that because that means you're thinking. And let me just say, from a macro view, you step back, you know, a few planets and take a look, and you say, well, over the course of human history, indeed, there have been different ways that God offered for man to respond, and they are not the same. But a micro view, if you look at any one particular dispensation, there is one and only one way For man to ever respond. So in our dispensation, it is by grace through faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for you to repent and believe the gospel. It is the only possible way that anybody can ever be saved, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. There is only one way in any particular one dispensation, and that should clarify that for you. This view of the scriptures, this is in your notes as well, this is the only way, the only way to understand the entirety of God's message literally, word for word, without adding, subtracting, or twisting the words of scripture. Let me just tell you something. When you realize that, when you realize that, when you realize that you can do that, And God's word can be literally taken word for word as it's given without having to say, well, he didn't really mean that. And if you just take that away and that, no, just take it like it is. You know what that does? That gives you just such an amazing confidence in God's word. I mean, it'll just set you on fire. I mean, it'll make you want to go and tell other people about it. And, And so this is God's divine system. Of interpreting the scriptures. Now, I want to leave you with this one last thing, and it is a very practical application for you to consider. Three things we're supposed to do with God's Word. We've been talking about it all week long from last week, and the first one is learn it. Learn it right. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. The first responsibility you have with God's word is to dig in, study, and extract it properly. Learn it right. The next thing, live it right. Second Timothy chapter 1, 13 and fourteen, we are to hold fast the form of sound words. You yourself, now that you have extracted it properly, now that you have studied it and learned it right, now live it right, make it real, apply it in your life, do what it says for you yourself. And then lastly, let it out. Second Timothy 2 1 and 2. Man, the things that you've learned of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men will be able to teach others also. I mean, give it away. Send it on to others. So dig it out, assimilate it yourself, and then spread it out among everybody else. Look, you may have tracked with all these dispensations and all this technical stuff we've gone through, and I tried to interject a little humor. But the truth of the matter is, it's a heavy subject. And and at the end of the day, regardless of where you're at in your spiritual walk with the Lord, I want you to understand those three points are for you. Do you study the Bible like you should? Do you live the Bible like you should? And do you share the Bible like you should? I mean, really, that's worth coming here for, to be encouraged to do that, because if we will do that, we're not going to be Laodiceans, and we need not fear the judgment seat of Christ. We can joyfully anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus because we have faithfully carried our cross, dying daily, Serving our King. Let's pray together. And if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to ask you a quick question. We're done. And that's this. If you're here today and you're just not 100% sure that you know that you're saved, I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to take a lot of time. I just want to know. Nobody's looking around. If that's you and you'd say, Pray for me, I'm not saved, I want to be saved, would you just hold your hand high and just hold it there? Don't move it. Just anybody at all, just hold your hand high. I want to pray for anybody upstairs or anybody downstairs. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be. I understand what Christ did for me. Man, it's never been easier. It's a free gift. Anybody at all, just pray for me. I don't see any hands. That means that all of you either know that you're saved or maybe you just don't care. But most of you know that you're saved. And if that's the case, let me just encourage you while we pray. Just assess where you're at and where you think God would want you to be and what it takes to get you from where you're at to where you need to be. The first step is always gonna be confessing any sin and then just surrendering your heart to do what you have you to do. Heavenly Father, we come to you in joy knowing that wow, we can trust you and your word and while some of these details may have flown by quickly, yet Lord, still we are just humbled by the revelation and we can gladly just cast our cares upon you and cast our lives into your ever-sufficient care, that you would come and that you would just help us and give us the grace necessary. Lord, we desire to walk with you. I pray for the brothers and sisters that would say, wow, I have been deficient, but today is the day I'm going to start to study. Some might say, man, I have known these things, but I have not applied them in my life, and I repent of those things, and from today I'm going to start living right. And others would say, my life is okay, but man, I've kept it to myself. And I'm going to start to share it with others. God, I pray that you would bring revival. And I pray that you would use First Baptist Church in mighty ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand with me? As always, we have one last worship song and an opportunity to worship the Lord in our giving as well. You can fill out your connection card and place that in the offering plate. If God has spoken to your heart, please let us know what he's doing.
1: Christ the Lord upon the tree in the picture guy and I really appreciate guys like Jeff that can really bring the big picture. We really got to see all of human history, all the different ways God's chose to deal with us and uh, man, I know that each each dispensation ends in failure, but let's not be the cause of that, right? Let's let's fulfill the mission that God gave to us and let's live the things out that we've learned. Let's learn it right and let's let's let them out. Uh, The pastors are going to be out in the lobby uh, if you'd like to meet meet them or talk to them. So uh, have a great afternoon and we'll see you back here next week.